Hello everyone, and welcome to the 1st of April 2020 edition of the All The Anime Podcast. Jeremy Graves here, just giving you a little intro before the intro proper. Now, before we get to the show with Dr. Jonathan Clements today, just wanted to make you aware of a few little sound gremlins that may have come into play at some random point during this podcast, which I did not find out until after we had recorded the show. So if at any random point it maybe sounds like Andy's been taken through the Matrix or possessed by a Decepticon or something for brief moments of time, nothing I can do about it. And also, if Jonathan randomly cuts out here and there, nothing I can do about it, but I've done my best to rectify those in post-production, so hopefully you won't notice too much but just wanted to give you a little heads up in case it is something you happen to notice. With that being said, enjoy, and on we go with the show. Hello everyone, and welcome to this edition of the All The Anime Podcast, coming to you on Wednesday the 1st of April, 2020. Yes everyone, congratulations, you have made it to the month of April. And because both myself, Jeremy Graves, and Mr. Andy Hanley wanted to do something a bit special this week, we decided... Rather than playing the fool, we're going to be the smart people, because we brought on a very smart man indeed. A man by the name of Mr. Jonathan Clements. Yes, Dr. Jonathan Clements. Remember that, Jeremy. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, bollocks. <laughs> Bolt up already. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Do you want me to restart? Or? <laughs> no, God, that's half the fun. <laughs> well, there you go. But, but Jonathan, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm a happy pixie. I am in Finland, as some of you know, and uh, we have a... Uh, competent government so uh they've been busy flattening the curve uh helsinki's been locked down and that's 200 miles away and the supermarkets are still working and everybody's happy so it's business as usual for me it's just lots more emails <laughs> and uh, andy how are you doing this afternoon at the time we're recording Yes, yeah, I'm I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, I I, I can't boast any kind of competent government in in my <laughs> but apart from that, yeah, all, all is well. So we might as well just talk about this and get this out of the way, just for the sake of making sure we touch on it. So from your perspective, Jonathan, given that you are, you are currently based in Finland, how has yeah. everything been for you overall? And what's your impression of the rest of the world at this point? Uh, well, the, the rest, I mean, I, as an Asia specialist, I was following China probably more closely than a lot of other people were. So I could sort of see it coming a, a way off. Um, and uh, so as far as other countries go, I will first say that beyond the problem with the Chinese law that allows you to sell bats and pangolins in wet markets full of fish, um, the Chinese government response was actually very good. And I think a lot of people didn't particularly take the Chinese government response very seriously. Um, the Finns were weeks ahead of the British. Um, I actually got my girlfriend out of Britain uh, in the middle of March, because I was pretty sure that the borders would be shut down and planes wouldn't be running and so on. Um, and uh, so we have just come out yesterday of, uh, of 14 days in uh, in isolation because she had travelled by plane and I had picked her up. Um, and uh, I'm in a town in Finland where the big news was one case of coronavirus. And they didn't report it until 14 days later when the case and everyone they contacted had come out of isolation. So it's all been very, very efficient. And you look at uh, Britain and America in particular, but certain other countries as well, and it just looks terrible. Um, mm. And my, my family are in the same kind of situation that, that you lot are in. I don't know, I don't know what Glasgow's like. Um, I, I know that you know London and, uh, and the, the dormitory suburbs where my family live, uh, you know, they're, they're undergoing you know, wartime austerity conditions all kinds of weird things like people trying to teach each other how to make yeast from rotting fruit um 
and and how to bake without flour and stuff. And this is this is completely foreign to uh, to to Finland, where supermarkets are running completely normally. And we don't have to it's, a, to get it's in. only been an interesting time here, Andy, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, I think we're at the point now where kind of all, all the people who have panic bought everything are now desperately trying to eat their way through all the stuff <laughs> that they've panic bought. So uh, I think we're at the point where the, the supermarket shelves are starting to look a bit healthier again. But yeah, uh, yeah it's been it's been a very strange time, and I mean, it's it's kind of hard to know what's going on in like the rest of the city because you know we we have sort of shut ourselves away in our own homes and apart from going out to the supermarket like i don't really know like how things are looking anywhere else because we're just kind of in our own little hovels at this point Mm. on a media point of view last night i watched contagion again the 2011 steven soderbergh film uh, where gwyneth paltrow shakes hands with a man who stuck his finger in the mouth of a pig that's been eating a banana that a bat chewed if uh, you want the, the, the spoiler laid an end, um, and it's incredibly accurate and accurate and prescient and prophetic about what's been going on. In in Contagion, the the virus that breaks out has a thirty percent mortality rate, so it's, a, it's an order of magnitude above uh, uh, COVID nineteen. But the language and the progression and the kind of incidents that are reported are a- amazingly prescient. It's a very interesting film to see. Mm, yeah, it's been it's been fascinating, like how the sales of that on digital services has kind of skyrocketed. Because I mean, for my part, like it's kind of the last film that I want to watch right now. It's something that's basically, you know, exactly what's going on in in the real world. But a lot of people, yeah, seem to have been drawn to any kind of film that is about a pandemic or you know, contagion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You, you say that, Andy, but last night my my girlfriend said that she felt she felt really cozy being able to watch it in a fictionalized form. Yeah, I guess as, yeah. as if the action of putting a pattern onto it, of like mapping a beginning and a middle, and more, most importantly, an end to it, somehow made her feel kind of safer and cozier. I mean, I think people will react in different ways. I, I, I was in two minds about watching it myself, and I'm, I'm certainly not up for twenty eight days later anytime soon. But um, <laughs> ne- nevertheless, um, I think that we got some sense watching it of, of how fiction can. Can be a kind of a, a kind of a panacea almost. A fiction can make you feel better about something, even though you're undergoing yourself. It's almost like you're inoculating yourself against the real world. Mm, yeah, makes sense. So anyway, outbreak with uh, Dustin Hoffman tonight. We'll see if that makes you feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> have you got? Have you got like an actual like plan of movies you're going to be watching then? No, no. Actually, we're spending most of our time going through the West Wing again because we can't bear real America. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. The West Wing is a pretty good shout as far as choices of things to marathon through are concerned. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is is that I live in a house that has got thousands of DVDs in it, so we can literally keep going forever. Um, many people, I'm sure, online are already sick of my of my project to watch every Finnish film ever made um, so that other people don't have to. And, and I actually have about 300 old Finnish films, and I'm trying to watch at least one a week. Um, but uh, no one else cares. I mean, I'm I'm curious now if if you have like a favourite Finnish film that you would recommend to anybody who can understand no, Finnish. Mainly, mainly terrible <laughs> so far. Uh, but it, it's fascinating for me because I'm watching the Finnish film industry in real time. You know, um, so at the moment I'm living in 1939 and I'm and I'm watching the films in the order they came out. You know, <laughs> rough, roughly, you know, uh, the kind of way they did. So you kind of see these actors' careers come and go, and people die, and you know, new starlets come in, and so on. And you kind of see these 
you know, different customs and different, you know, ways that people's houses look and it all kind of changes. So that's kind of fun to live in a different time, mm. as it were. Um, and the film critic, Mark Cousins, for some reason, he's, I think, for some reason, he's watching only films made in the year 1940. Year. Oh, sorry, Jonathan, which year? 1940. Hmm. I don't know, maybe he's 40 years old or something. I, I don't know what's going on, but, but he's decided that that's what he's going to do. And so he's just constantly um, uh, talking about films from all over the world made in that particular year. Well, I um, I don't really know what direction to go in after all that, because that's actually genuinely quite fascinating. I suppose, <laughs> I, 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 just, I, I suppose, in terms of how Finland is overall, what, what's the actual reaction just in general been of, of the Finnish population to this? Well, the, for, for the Finns, the idea of you know interacting with people who are six feet away from you is tantamount to flirting. Um, so they uh, they they've been very stoic about social distancing. Um, they're not happy about the schools being shut down, particularly, um, and they are not happy that the Swedes are just taking it all totally unseriously, uh, because Finland has a very large border with Sweden up in Lapland, and the Sami reindeer herders wander across it with impunity you can't stop them because it's a it's a political issue um so there's a bit of kind of leakage uh of coronavirus coming in in the far north which they're not very happy about but basically um the, the system is working incredibly well um the the Finns are very serious about um shutting things down they've actually shut down helsinki i don't know probably Probably none you nor the listeners give much of a toss about uh, fin, the, the Finnish news, but basically Helsinki's been cordoned off. The police have shut all the roads because the most of the coronavirus cases are in Helsinki. So if you can imagine London being actually shut down and kind of walled off, and so the rest of the country is just getting on with it, and uh, Helsinki itself is, is where most of the cases are. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty weird. You know, that's 10%. Uh, no, 20% of the population, basically, are basically shut inside one city. Oh, wow. Um, and the rest of the population is just kind of getting on with it. Um, and they're making all their announcements in at least three languages because they know there are immigrants who don't speak Finnish or Swedish. Um, and they shut down the restaurants a little bit late, actually, uh, quite, only quite recently. But there's all kinds of clever things, like the taxi drivers have all pivoted to become delivery people. So when you go to the supermarket, there's a lot more taxis parked outside because taxi drivers are shopping for people. They're like taking orders and bringing them their shopping. Um, so that keeps the taxi drivers busy, but it also help, helps take the load off the, the supermarket delivery people. And there's all mm. kinds of little clever, you know, Finnish hacks like that. It's got nothing to do with Japanese animation. I'm sorry to go on about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose to, to get on to, to Japanese animation, then, Jonathan, is there anything in particular you've been indulging in during your period of lockdown? No, uh, <laughs> no. Actually, there is there there is because uh, of the very cunning decision by Netflix to just dump all the Studio Ghibli on over the last three months. Um, and I have a lot of Ghibli films uh, in my collection, but I won't let my son see them because they're mine. Um, <laughs> and um, the cobbler's children have no shoes. You know, I, I my, my Ghibli DVDs are part of my working materials i can't let them get covered in jam or anything so he's never been allowed to watch them and so we actually sat through you know totoro and porco rosso and kiki's delivery service uh which for him was the first time uh, it was very exciting for him and and i had to sit through the dubs which i've never you know consciously wanted to um so i i've been i've been seeing a lot of ghibli lately and and i imagine so have a lot of other people because you know there's not a 
the, the amount of choice that you have on online television is not as big as you think it is. It's not designed to have, it's not designed for people who are locked indoors for a month, you know? Mm. And, and I can see kind of Netflix and HBO fatigue setting in among some people as they're saying, well, what are we going to watch now? Do we have to watch this? Is there really nothing else? Um, so I imagine that Ghibli's picked up quite a lot of new fans lately, but not my brother who has watched them all in the last few weeks while he's been locked down in South End and hates everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I get these so, daily insulting tweets from him saying, this is just a bunch of pedo nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting you mentioned that, that your son's watching them for the first time. What what have sort of been any interesting reactions or things perhaps you didn't expect or any um, interesting quirks? Well, I've, I spent a lot of time watching him watch them um, because I'm very interested in how... Uh, the uh, how Ghibli films come across with someone um, who is uh, has a short attention span or wouldn't necessarily understand any of the cultural cues or anything like that. I, I mean, I'm particularly interested in Totoro because it's a film without any jeopardy. I mean, it was deliberately written by Miyazaki to be a film with no good versus evil. He absolutely hated the, the formulaic plotting of. Um, you know, TV cartoons in particular, but also, you know, mainstream uh, features where there has to be a bad guy and there has to be a danger to overcome. And so he deliberately wrote Totoro as a kind of up yours to Toshio Suzuki to say it was possible to write a film that didn't have any jeopardy. And Toshio Suzuki, in fact, um, didn't believe that this film would possibly be successful. So he actually put it on a double bill with an educational film with, with Grave of the Fireflies to ensure the school's audience had these kind of compulsory screenings and they could dump Totoro on them as well, just in case they hated it. Um, so I'm very interested to see how people react for the first time to Totoro. And, and he was, as Miyazaki hoped children would be, entirely enraptured by a very simple, you know, holiday in the countryside. And I think that takes on more meaning when you can't go outside. You know, you the, we, we, we have kind of limited abilities to go outside and to you know go to the playground and so on and you know Miyazaki intended Totoro as this kind of virtual holiday for latchkey kids in the city who couldn't go out and I think it really you know we, we, we're talking about it now 30 years after he made it and it still achieves that very nicely so I suppose that the better question to ask now is how many times have you had to watch Totoro since you first introduced ah, him? Ah, well, to I haven't, I, I, I haven't let him watch it again. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, know, you know, Miyazaki quite emphatically said that he didn't think children should see more than one film a year, um, and he really wants uh, a cinema to be an experience that is, you know, cherished and special, and not just another shouty cartoon shoved down your eye holes. So, uh, so far, I've managed to, you know talk him out of that but he, he his favorite cartoon is actually a korean cartoon called super wings anyway which is about racist planes um, <laughs> so uh do, do, do you are you aware of super wings if you haven't got kids you probably aren't it, it's, no, about, no. it's about this plane that has to deliver parcels all over the world and every time he gets to deliver a new parcel you know he ends up in this country which is an absolutely ridiculous racial stereotype of whatever that country is <laughs> Um, and, and so we call it the racist plane show. Um, but you know, it's got a sing along theme song and you know, it's always fun. The French are really irritating in Finnish as well as in French, <laughs> it turns out. Um, um, and, uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, it's actually made by Koreans, but it's, you know, been 
It's, it's, it's available all over the world, and Netflix have only got season one, and I'm getting a little bit sick of seeing it over and over again. <laughs> so come on, Netflix, get season two of Super Wings out. We want to find different races and countries to take the piss out of. Are there not different audio options so you can experience them in different languages? There are, but I don't really want to confuse my son any more than he already is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I suppose on that note, then, everybody, I will I'll formally welcome you to the podcast. And, oh, and say, and say if you haven't already... Make... Pardon? We could just cut all that. <laughs> are, you, are you kidding? No chance. All right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's prime content, if you ask me. I found it fascinating, genuinely. But if you haven't already, everybody, make sure you visit our website, alltheanime.com. There you can find information on on things that were not mentioned by Jonathan just then, I can assure you of that. In many of our upcoming releases, already available releases, and more. You can find us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube by searching for All The Anime. Just put the URL in, and then All The Anime immediately after. If you're looking for a bargain during this time of wonderful lockdown... How about we hook you up with some of the Persona 3 movies, because all four of them are on special offer until Tuesday the 7th of April on both Blu-ray and DVD. So if you're waiting for your copy of Persona 5 Royal to arrive in the post, perhaps, but you need something to tide you over, we might be able to help you out with the Persona 3 films. And speaking of Persona 5, if you haven't already, everybody, and you're a fan of Persona 5, we are going to be releasing the Daybreakers OVA episode on Blu-ray this coming Monday, the 6th of April, and you can pre-order it right now from our alltheanime.com online shop. And speaking of upcoming releases as well, I might as well make mention of the fact that also on Monday we are releasing the Fooly Cooly soundtrack on CD. So if you've been holding off on purchasing the vinyl because you were waiting for a CD release, your time has come. You can order that today at our alltheanime.com online shop. And also available to order now, again, should you have a lot of money you want to spend and want to find something to spend it on, Tokyo Ghoul RE Part 2 is available to order from our shop now, as are the standard edition Blu-rays of Jinro and Gundam Char's Counter-Attack. And if you want a, a really cool film to perhaps change the mood a little bit, Penguin Highway is also available to order now. And we've got lots of upcoming releases to make mention of. And uh, Andy, it's probably worth mentioning right now that perhaps if people check back at the end of the week, there may be a, an upcoming title that people can pre-order. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, um, keep an eye on us over over the next couple of days. To be honest, because we we have some uh, some stuff to uh, to tell you about and and prepare you for. And uh, yeah, we've got uh, got a, a big title incoming uh, for pre order as well. So uh, yeah, stay tuned as always. I just want to ask if I can, Jeremy. Yeah, go uh, for it. If, tell me to shut up if you've already covered this in a previous podcast. But what <laughs> is the mail order situation like at the well, Joe, you know, actually, might make mention of it again. Uh, currently, the situation is we are still sending out orders. It's perhaps not as quickly as it's as it has been, but we are still currently sending out orders. That nothing is shutting down as things stand. Marvelous. So, so yes, get your anime, folks. Get your anime or, or CD, I guess, and your music. Get anything, books. <laughs> I'm sure that'll happen at some point soon. So. We don't often sort of touch on news of other things that are going around, but there are one or two things that we did want to make mention of. And the first piece of news that we're actually going to be touching on broke publicly yesterday, and it comes in the way of the status of Neo magazine, because, uh, Andy, there's been a significant update as to how Neo is going to be operating for a while. 
Yes. So, uh, yeah, obviously, uh, given what, what we've been talking about with uh, COVID-19, et cetera, et cetera, um, Neo Magazine is basically going on hiatus uh, as things currently stand, as you can imagine, with a lot of shops shut down, for you know, especially for non-critical services and people not wanting to go out for anything other than, than critical goods. Um, magazine and, and newspaper sales are suffering somewhat. And so, uh, yeah, Neo Magazine is going on hiatus um, for the time being um, to uh, to kind of wait things out and see how things go. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's going to be uh, something that we'll, we'll keep an eye on, of course, over the, the coming uh, weeks and months to uh, to see what happens. And, and hopefully they'll be kind of back in uh, operation soon once uh, once we're kind of back to, to something approaching normality in the, uh, the coming months. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that's been brewing for a while um, at, at Neo. I can see, um, and uh, Gemma told the writers um, shortly before uh, the the social media post went out because uh, she was she was quite despondent about it. The editor of Neo, um, you, you may not be aware of this because it's something that you probably would only need to really understand if you're if you're a magazine journalist. But um, one of the ways that Neo has managed to survive so well for what is it 14 15 years is that um uh, essentially every issue is written on spec and you don't get paid for it until the people have bought the magazine and the money's come back to the company that publishes it so um that's all very well but if there is a sudden catastrophic drop in sales um caused uh, either by people having other priorities or people not being able to get out of the house or as it seems from uh, from a recent issue just people just not getting it at the news agents if you can't get into wh smith then where are you going to get it um then the the it, it becomes kind of unfeasible so um Gemma was you know very very unhappy about that and uh you know my heart goes out to her because you know for me neo is only <laughs> day or so uh, every month of uh, the work that I do but for the writers who write much more for the magazine and, and for the woman who edits it and the person who designs it obviously it's their livelihood and they you know they've been furloughed and told to you know come back when there's an improvement in conditions and you know you may remember um, when Gemma uh, was a judge um, at Scotland Loves Anime uh, she uh, issued quite a heartfelt kind of monologue about how important it was for her the, the magazine be a physical object that it have this kind of haptic quality that you know she doesn't want it to be a solely online thing she doesn't want it to be just another website she wants it to be a physical object that you could cherish and hang up posters from and put on your shelves and so on and of course the trouble with having a physical object is unless you have a huge number of subscribers uh, you are relying on the retail sector in Britain to allow people through their doors and to actually you know buy the magazine um and so so neo has been quite severely kneecapped um already by the last three or four weeks and so they they made the decision there to to hold off on issue 199 uh sorry 199 um and, until such time as they were as they were sure that there would be a retail sector for people to actually physically be able to buy it it is a, a real, real shame. Because like you said, Jonathan, Neo's been around for, for ages. So many years at this point. And the fact that they were so close to Neo 200 as well, which for any magazine is an incredible milestone. It's oh, a real... so I'm sorry to interrupt, Jeremy, but when I was at Mangomania, the editor, Kevin Redoubt, said that um, if a magazine makes it past two years, it is an outlier. That mm -hmm. the, average, the average magazine title only lasts for 24 months. 
And so for Neo to last uh, since, well, I think it's the first issue was 2005, I want to say. Um, maybe it was late 2004. So it's it's done incredibly well. And I'm sure there will be an issue 199. And I'm sure they will get to issue 200 as well. Um, it's just that there will be a, a, a longer delay. And, it, and it's kind of ironic that in a time of panic buying, um, there's a paper product that people didn't panic buy. Gemma said, and owning the internet when she did, if we'd have printed it on toilet paper, we'd have been all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it, it, it is... It, it is. What's the way to phrase this? It, obviously, given the way things are, there were going to be things like this that were happening, but it is very surreal to think now that currently Neo is just, it's just on hiatus. Like, yeah. it's, it's pause, and it's not going to be there for a while. It is, it is quite surreal to think that, even though, obviously, given current circumstances, it... Not that it's an obvious thing, perhaps, mm-hmm. to expect, but now that it's actually happened, it is genuinely quite sad. Yeah, it's uh, we are going to face a lot of systemic and structural changes over the next few weeks and few months, because this is um, it's not an unprecedented event, but it's, it's, it's unprecedented in, in recent history. And uh, owing to the issue of the, the so-called silent carriers, owing to the fact that you can be infected with it and not know and infect a dozen other people, um, with a with a fourteen day incubation, this is something that has to be treated as as something that is substantially more dangerous than it actually is, um, and so uh, there will be uh, real shocks um, to the capitalist system that are delivered by this. And uh, what what surprises me actually is is how little it's affected the anime business so. Far. I mean, uh, if you look at the if you divide the business into you know production and exhibition and and uh, sort of production distribution exhibition and reception reception is not being affected people can still watch anime um exhibition has been severely affected because we can't go to cinema and of course that was a problem for uh violet evergarden uh, back in glasgow and it's a problem for every single anime event that there is and including mcm and including you know any convention you care to name moving forward um, in production terms, though, what surprised me is that although there have been one or two delays and one or two kind of furloughs, um, people are still delivering. And I think that this is probably a feature of the ability of many people to work remotely on anime. I mean, the idea that you can deliver anime you know, down a phone line has been uh, something that the business has dealt with for the last 20 years. And we are fortunate in that regard that so much of it is digitized and that the the level, the, the power of the computer that you need to work on the average TV cartoon is within reach of somebody's home office. And that was never, that was never the case before. But, it, you know, in the last few years, it has been possible. That's made a big difference. Um, we interviewed Tomoki Kyoda, the director of um, Eureka 7 Eureka. Evolution. Yeah, when, he, when, when I was talking to him at Scotland Loves Anime a couple of years ago, uh, he just said something in passing, which is really kind of relevant now, which was that because uh, we're talking about the earthquake, I think, and, and the, the, the 2011 Fukushima business. And I was asking him, you know, what kind of effect that had had on the business. And he said it was relatively negligible in the term. Just kind of got on with it. He said to me, if you really want to see what shuts down the anime business, it's a national holiday in China. And uh, once one thing I did notice is that when China shut down, the merchandise industry suddenly suffered a drastic cut in its supply chain. And so although anime releases in Japan um, were not and still really have not yet been really affected, 
anime releases that came attached to merchandise. So anime that came with a plushie or a keyring or something built in, they all suddenly got delayed. Um, so, you know, you have these kind of indirect effects to the supply chain that you're not necessarily expecting. And we're going to see a few more of those things, I think, coming up in future, as well as a general slowdown in anime. And to add to that as well, as soon as things started shutting down in China, look at the amount of episodes that got delayed of anime that were meant to be airing. Oh, that, that that did happen, did it? Because I didn't, I didn't see any delays. Where, where yes, yeah, yeah. There were a, a few isolated ones. There, there also been a couple of shows that should should have been starting this April that they pushed back a season. Uh, like Rezero season two has been the biggest casualty. That should have been starting in the next week or so, but that's now been pushed back to summer. But yeah, it's been it's been mostly quite kind of it, it's been quite so kind of isolated when cases. Was, when was Rezero season three supposed to start? So that was Rezero season two was supposed to start basically in the next week or so, and a, a few weeks okay. back they pushed it so, back. So let me put it like this: the animation on that show has probably not been affected. It's everything else has been affected. Mm, possibly, like, you so know, e- everything around it. Everything you know, they're, 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 the, the animation part of making an animated TV show comes at roughly the halfway mark of a long production process, and there's a whole bunch of other things that come after the animation is done. Um, so, for example, I, I know, for example, that simuldubs have been shut down now. Yes. Because, you know, you've got to make the show and then get a bunch of people in a studio together to, to record. That's not going to happen. Um, so those kind of elements of the process are certainly being, being hampered already. Um, I, I don't think it's really filtered through to the animation part yet. But, but as you say, yes, these, these other elements of the process, these, these ones that come after the animation, they, uh, they are often quite social experiences, shall we say, and that's going to be difficult to do when you're only allowed two people in a room. And so, uh, another thing perhaps, I guess, to, to, to factor into that is a lot of, I mean, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of projects to be announced or maybe big promotion trains starting, in theory, would have occurred at Anime Japan last month, which obviously never happened. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a, a lot of people... Um, there has a, a tradition has evolved for you know public announcements. I, I personally find it ludicrous that you know people should queue for three hours at uh, at the San Diego Comic Con to be told something they can see on YouTube ten minutes later. Um, but uh, certainly, the press events that are intended to make a splash, they're intended to get the attention of the media, are not getting anyone's attention, and they're not happening. Um, and uh, this has even affected the BFI because the British Film Institute was supposed to have this huge Japan season coming up in the summer. And it was absolutely monstrously big Japan season to tie into the Olympics, which, of course, also now postponed. Hmm. And um, there was a substantial anime presence there. Um, and uh, no one was quite sure what the anime presence was, but there were a whole bunch of rumors about some very big uh, anime events happening, some some films that I've been hoping to see in a, on a big screen for a long time, and some kind of retrospectives and some interesting stuff. I'm sure, probably, Andrew Partridge has a better idea what the BFI will be showing than most people, because he was probably supplying half of it. But nevertheless, there was a big uh, press event that was going to come up on the 16th of March. We had a whole bunch of journalists poised to find out exactly what it was that was happening, and what these special events would be. And that was going to affect the coverage in Sight and Sound magazine, in Neo magazine, the Anime Limited blog, anyone who covers anime or Japan was, you know, waiting to hear what this massive event was going to be 
and they shut down the press the press screening and in fact the the, the, the press event and in fact they've now um, they're not even they haven't even told us what it's going to be because they're not even sure it's going to happen. So what would have been the anime event of the summer uh, is either happening or not happening. It's kind of Schrodinger's anime event at this point. We're not totally sure whether it's happening or not. Um, I'm still waiting to hear from British Film Institute myself, and I think they're probably still trying to decide. You know, do we run our Japan coverage a year before it's relevant now, or do we say, okay, we'll run it now anyway? You know, what? Or do we not run anything? These are all questions that are particularly issues for the exhibition sector, which is, you know, the cinemas. Because if the cinema is not open, we can't show the film. And if you don't have anything else in place for people to watch it at home, uh, do you want to get involved? And also, I think there's a whisper behind the scenes of the exhibition sector, which is that if people get too used to watching it at home, do we really want to encourage that? Because, you know, we, we all work in a field where we try and encourage people to come to the cinema, to enjoy the cinema as an experience that is somehow better and more exciting than being at home. But even as I say that, I'm thinking of my own family stuck five to a room in Essex, and they'll be desperate to get out of the house when this is all over. So yeah, maybe they will go to the cinema. It'll be interesting to see how how the culture of going out changes once this once this has all been and done, and however it's ultimately resolved. When you think about going to the cinema, for example, are things going to be changing in general as to how people want to? sit in a cinema like will they want to make sure there are gaps in between people for example which is a which is a pretty regular occurrence anyway but it'll just be interesting to see yeah it'll be difficult sla to tell everyone to move up close to the person who smells a bit um yeah i think that um well well, firstly let's let's be very clear here this this is a this will go away yes Um, within 18 months uh there will be a vaccine uh, there will be some form of immunity. There will, some, there will be some people who've had it and some people who haven't. Um, uh, it is a real irritant that there is a, a, a novel coronavirus out there, but there have been things like this before. There, there's been Russian flu. There's been Asian flu. There's been Johannesburg flu. There's been Spanish flu. Um, so, and, and, of course, there's been SARS and MERS and a whole bunch of other things. So ultimately there will be a return i think the real issue for a lot of people is going to be this kind of i don't know what the word for it is this kind of backlash which we're already seeing in china now which is the chinese have been locked down for eight weeks they have dealt with the very worst of it um thankfully they have had a fantastically good response once the problem was identified and they dealt with it i mean i don't think you could have got away with locking people down for that long unless you had an authoritarian government. You know, the fact mm. that Chinese could do it was, 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 was very useful for them. And it was also over Chinese New Year when people were actually at home with their families. But this week, they started relaxing the restrictions a bit. They started letting people out. They opened the cinemas again. And then suddenly they shut the cinemas down again because they suddenly appreciating the silent carriers are an issue. And I think that that's what's really going to wind people up about this is that we will reach a point in a couple of months when things look like they're getting better again. And then we may have to face the prospect of locking down again for another fortnight. And I I think people are going to get really sick of that and there's going to be lots of resistance to it. Um, So that, that, that kind of intermediate period it's going to make life very difficult. And, and we were talking about me watching The West Wing earlier on. It's really shocking the, the amount of times that people shake hands on that show <laughs> because that feels so alien now uh, to see people doing that. But, you know, this is something the human race has been through, you know, many plagues and diseases and outbreaks before. Uh, we will ultimately get through this. So I don't think there's going to be 
a, an enduring systemic, systemic change. I don't think cinemas are not going to exist anymore by the year 2025, but they are going to suffer a serious hit to their business, and that may you know, cause some of them to disappear. Um, and when it comes to distancing, yeah, I, I think that there, there's going to be a false dawn, if that makes sense. You're going to think it's all over, you're going to start getting back to normal, and then suddenly you're going to find yourself buying six pints of milk again because you're not sure you can leave the house for a fortnight. And, and that is going to wear on people, I think, in many ways, more than, this, than things currently do now. Because right now it's kind of novel and it's kind of, I, I won't say it's exciting for everybody, but it's still relatively new. You haven't watched everything on Netflix. You haven't read every book in your house. You're not sick of your family. But, you know, you're going to get out of the house and then you'll, you'll discover you have to go back in again. And that's what's really going to hurt Andy, anything you'd like to add? Because I appreciate you've sort of just been able to sit here and listen in for a few minutes now. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's all kind of spot on. And yeah, like it, it's going to be interesting to see if people's behaviours do shift, you know, perhaps not wholesale, but in subtle ways after this. I mean, just you know, even from the hygiene perspective of, you know, we should all have been washing our hands regularly from the very start. But, you know, suddenly the, the kind of the impression upon you that it's really important to do that. Like, is that something that's going to stick with people? Like once this is over, you, you know, working... shock me, Andy, you absolutely shocked me that you haven't been doing this already. Oh, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not speaking from my, for myself here, but, uh, but yeah. And, and you know, like the, the whole working from home thing, you know, is, is there going to be a shift in attitudes of companies saying, well, maybe we don't need an office or maybe we don't need such a big office now because I actually, people can do a lot of their work remotely and you know we've yeah. been dragging people into a workplace for so long i mean again like the you know the, the animation industry to kind of get back on the sort of the anime track you know will there be be changes to kind of workflows there to say well actually you know are, are there more efficient ways of doing this where we don't have to have big studio buildings anymore where we can just let everybody scatter to the winds and work from their homes um, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to point out, actually, um, this is a, a, an old Scotland Loves Anime story from 20, I want to say 2010, 2011, whenever the first year was. I was actually very insistent that Andrew Partridge keep washing his hands in disinfectant. Um, and he thought I was a bit weird. But I'd, I'd come from Atlanta, where um, the medical officer for Project Acon is a woman called Dr. Laura Block. And she was very insistent about controlling convention crud, as we used to call it. This idea that you have... <laughs> wonderful phrase. You've got 3,000 people in America, American conventions. They're all congregating, you know, on a big sweaty room and they're not eating properly and they're staying up late and they, some of them maybe are ill. And you can come away with three or four different diseases that you pick up at a convention. And in, a, in an industry like anime, where the, the domestic industry for, for Britain, for example, is basically a dozen people and they're all going to be at that convention in the, in the dealer's room, you will find yourself in a position where you can knock out the industry for, for, for two months. So Dr. Laura was very keen. She, she, she said to me, if you just wash your hands like six or seven times a day, just make a habit of doing it. Um, use disinfectant after you've shaken someone's hand or, you know, touched fans in, in, in any way. Um, just, you know, attempt to, you know, treat it as if you are dealing with infectious people, even though you're not. That is the way that guests and staff at a convention can try and avoid getting home from that convention and then being laid up for a week off work. 
Um, and and I, I took that with me to Scotland's anime, and I was always walking around with a little with a little jar of uh, of hand disinfectant, and, you know, making Andrew wash his hands and making him pop vitamin pills in the morning and things. Because you know what it's like at a convention or a festival. You're on your feet all day. You are tired. You are constantly on form. You're never able to eat what you want when you want, and that can really affect you over several days and and predispose you to be weaker. And so I've I've always been very kind of keen on dealing with con crud before it turns up and this is like the mother of all con cruds really yeah i I can speak for both andy and i that we've both suffered from what uh, i think we've affectionately called like the the con plague at various events yeah where it just it it just knocks you for six after the fact yeah and i think that we should be conscious uh, and and so should fans and convention goers you should be conscious you are in a, a hot incubating space with thousands of other people and you know you will be tired. You will tire yourself. May that that makes you kind of weak. And, and so if if what comes out of this is less con crud in three years' time, that'd be great. I think maybe I'm, I I hope I hope that what this will also mean is that people are more careful with um, their travel plans. Um, I was I'm supposed to be in China at the moment. I'm supposed to be heading off there um, uh, doing research on a new book. Um, and I had to cancel all of my plans. Um, but for, for some reason, I, I didn't buy everything in advance non-refundable. I managed to get all my money back. And I think, particularly with young fans, the idea, when you go to a convention, if you've paid in advance for your hotel room and you've got a bit of a sniffle, you think, I'm just going to power through this. It'll be okay. And I think one of the things that COVID-19 is, is teaching us or reminding us is that just because you're going to be okay doesn't mean the people around you will. And maybe for their benefit, you should stay away. And I think it would be easier for people to stay away if they weren't committing themselves to the money they're spending on going. Agreed. I can't add anything to that, Andy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a weird thing. Like, again, this is, is very much brought into relief for me, the idea that you go to conventions or events and you, you basically go in with the knowledge, like, I'm probably going to get sick out of this. Like, I'm probably going to get some kind of, like, cold or illness out of it. And it sort of becomes this weird, you know, sort of inevitability that you just shrug off and this is kind of a reminder of like this isn't really how this should work you know there shouldn't be a guarantee that yep i'm gonna get sick off of this you know because absolutely not absolutely not i mean because of the other thing is well i suspect anyway that when you do a convention event you're getting days off in lieu and you don't want to spend those in bed exactly um and i and i you know my my ex-wife was like she would go to china on a on a business trip and she would be she would literally forget to sleep uh, for days on end because she was so busy doing stuff and then she'd come back and she would be ill for a week um and uh i i'm self-employed i'm my own boss i can't afford to be ill for a week trip so i do make extra effort to put myself in a position where uh where i don't expose myself to that kind of thing i do try and look travel um and i i do kind of try and take steps to to avoid that kind of situation and I, I think that, uh, yes, certainly in, in, in your case, it should not be an, an, an inevitability. If you think of it as an inevitability, then you're doing something wrong. And yeah. you, I mean, certainly try and, and take steps to, 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 to not do that <laughs> um, because your days off in lieu should be fun. You should be, you know, with a thermometer in your mouth, you know, laid up in bed watching Netflix. And, and, and the myriad of quality programming available at your disposal. Like, what's that thing that's popular right now? Is it Tiger King? Yeah, I haven't seen it. I'm not. No, I'm. I'm, I'm I, can't, I, can't, I can't be bothered with it, quite frankly. But 
that might change in a week depending on how lockdown goes but there you go mm. the the, um, <laughs> the other the other piece of news that we did want to touch on which actually seemingly broke within an hour or two of us recording this show today everybody uh, it actually relates to uh, Masaki Iwasa doesn't it Andy uh, yes, so uh, in, in that confusing way when any news that comes out in April the 1st, the first question you ask is like, well, is this legit or not? <laughs> um, but it seems like it all adds up that it is. Is that uh, Yeah, the uh, director, the well-known director, Masaki Yuasa, has uh, announced that he is stepping down as the president and representative director of uh, Science Saru, the uh, studio behind um, Isaacen most uh, recently, but also Lou Over the Wall, Nighted Short, etc., etc. Um, so yeah, he's basically said quite fairly that he has been working non-stop for seven years and probably needs a bit of a holiday basically um and so he's he's stepping down from that role as of uh, as of to, well i think as of march the 25th actually so as of a few days ago i may be proved wrong on this there may be some dreadful scandal but i suspect that this is a total non-story um and the reason is i think some confusion over the term representative director uh, this has got nothing to do with making anime. It's about being the, the face of the business in Japan, um, being the guy who has to go to meetings with accountants. Um, he served seven years from the foundation of the company, which is a perfectly reasonable time to put in on a, on a directorial role. Um, and uh, this is the end of the Japanese tax year. Um, uh, you know, it's 5th of April coming up. It's the end of the tax year in a lot of countries. It's also two weeks after his 55th birthday, which is something of a milestone uh, for the Japanese. It's uh, it's often when people start kind of winding down uh, on their business obligations. They'll they'll keep working, but not necessarily in in the roles they were in. In the the salary mandate, 55 was when you could seriously consider about retiring because you paid enough into your pension at that point. So what we're getting, I think, uh, and I'm, I'm... speaking here from a position of profound ignorance but from what i know about the way the japanese business world works you've got a man who's put in seven years on a company he founded who wants someone else to handle the accountants from now he's finished work on um japan thinks uh which is his, his new title that's been put to bed so he can have a little bit of a rest on that and he doesn't really fancy doing the end of the business year accountants things he's already said he's going to be working on inu or which is his his new series due out in 2021 so he's not stopping making anime he is really waiting for some other poor sod to do that boring part of running a business that he's taken on because he was one of the founders of the studio and so with that in mind i would say this is probably an issue that should only concern you if you are excited about the world of anime sorry the world of anime accountancy that's what I thought you said. Sorry, you cut out briefly there. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting one because when I saw this, that my the first thing that came to my mind, kind of like you said, was almost, and this is a very broad way to phrase it, but almost stepping down from being the face of the company. Yeah, well, it's I'm a very, very broad way of phrasing it, but that's sort of how it came across to me. Yes, well, I mean, that's what a representative director is, and it, it has certain tax implications and certain legal implications in Japan from a business point of view. You have to sign certain documents, you have to be in certain meetings. So in that regard, yes, you are the public face of the company. But when Masaki Yuasa makes Inu Inu Or and comes to Scotland to talk about it on stage, he's still going to be the face of that anime. He's still Mm. going to be the guy who directed it. Um, So I, I think really this is, I mean, I get really excited about the business end of anime, fascinated about how, you know, 
an, industri an industry can work in the creative arts. And I'm always interested about how that works. So it's interesting for me that this is when he chooses to set down. This, this may be, he may be selling some of his shares or he may be collecting certain dividends or, or whatever. But I think in terms of the kind of anime that get made, there's, there's probably no real change. Possibly he's taking more of a backseat role on some of the directorial staff, and, and we'll find out that he's a he's a supervising director, and someone else has the actual Kantoku director credit on things that are coming up. But that's also something that happens when you get old and you don't want to have to show up at work first thing in the morning, still eating your toast like Isao Takahata, you know. Um, so uh, what tends to happen in a lot of anime companies, seen this an incredible amount in the last ten years because of all the baby boomer companies with all the people who are kind of reaching their 60s and retiring they sell off their shares and they try and sell them to someone who's going to do right by their company um but normally they're selling them off in their 60s he's 55 and i don't know if he's selling anything but he's certainly taking uh not a different role but probably concentrating on the thing he likes doing you know uh you reach a certain age and you just you just had enough of all the other shit you know and I, I think that's probably what we see in his tweets, as reported on on ANN, is probably a very polite way of saying what I've just said. Uh, Andy, anything you'd like to add before we uh, move on to to something else? No, I mean I, I think that's exactly it. Like it's, it does seem pretty clear that this is just kind of you know a, a breather before his his next work. And yeah, like I think stepping away from from being the the face and having to deal with the business stuff kind of makes sense for him at, at this point in time. So uh, yeah, like you know, hopefully we we continue to to see him, you know, in his creative capacity because I think that's what most people are, are kind of interested in him for. So uh, so yeah, I, I suspect we've not seen the last ones like you are so at all. And, and I think I will add as well that, that this is also a feature of the level of the high level of news we'll get from the anime business. So if you remember that we've had Anime News Network now for about 19 years, um, and so over the last two decades, there have been all kinds of moments, I'm sure, when, when representative directors of anime companies have stepped down from their role, signed a piece of paper, moved a, moved a form around, got an accountant to do something. But those haven't been news. What we have today is, is social media that immediately puts the private thoughts of uh, a particular director into the, onto the phones of thousands of anime fans. Um, and we've got a news service that will report on them. Sometimes I, I don't think it's necessarily worth reporting, but I think it's good that we have the option to decide that for ourselves. Agreed. So from there, let's move on to uh, let's move on to some questions and topics that have come in from the world of Facebook and Twitter and such. Because I know we've got a few interesting things to come from here. Yeah. So let's dive into Facebook first. Hello, Facebook world. I know you sometimes feel neglected. I'll I'll um I'll ask a question. Sorry, I don't know what I was going to say there. <laughs> My brain's gone. Uh, first one from John Drew. What would be? Uh, this is, I'm assuming this is directly to you, Jonathan, based mm. on the wording. Uh, what would be your dream title to receive an ultimate edition from you guys, except Momotaro? Okay. Well, I'm going to be I'm going to be very selfish with this one I'm gonna, because you know I'm very fond of the Momotaro piece because I got to write that fantastic book all about its director and his life and his works. Um, and since then, uh, with Andrew Osmond, I've actually written two more books on two more anime films. Uh, one is Hakujaden, the white snake enchantress from um, the first anime color feature in 1958. And one of them is about Little Norse Prince, Isao Takahata's 1968 um, film, 
uh, also known as Hole's Great Adventure, which was an absolute box office disaster and ruined his career for a decade. Um, and we've written books on both those subjects, uh, and we're kind of hoping that at some point there will be an opportunity to release them um, tied into some kind of anime release. Um, I don't think either of those films is available. The right, I don't think the rights to either of those films are actually available for animated to snap up. Otherwise, they would have done so already. Um, we don't know who's got the rights to Haku Jardin, and we're kind of hoping the BFI event in the summer would really that was um and little north prince is still with i think discotech in america i want to say i can't be sure right now um so in in, in either in either case oh no actually it's, it's um canal isn't it uh, uh, in the uk yeah i think studio yeah, canal. It's, it's, it's studio canal so either way though those aren't available but those are the things i would like to see because you know i'm i'm very proud of the kind of um forensic work that i can do with an anime film um, I've actually just done it with another anime film. I've just handed in this week um, a chapter to a book about Isao Takahata, which is being edited um, by David Dessa and uh, Raina Dennison and a couple of other people. Um, and uh, it's about a film called Chie the Brat, which is a very obscure Isao Takahata film from 1983. And, uh, the, and the idea with this with this chapter was is that I would find out everything that had been said in Japanese by the people who worked on this film and see if something you know that obscure could still um, you know generate enough material to talk about it and and, and and yes it can we've got some fantastic stuff about this film's you know place in history and uh, what it meant to Takahata and what what elements of Takahata's future career you can see reflected in this film that hardly anybody's seen because it's about slum life in Osaka among the Yakuza and the and the offal sellers so it's hardly you know Princess Kaguya but nevertheless you can see kind of elements that would become Princess Kaguya kind of kicking around in it so something like that I would think I, I, I don't sit around all day thinking well I wouldn't actually I'm just I tell a lie I know exactly what I would want anime limited to do that's gunbuster yeah, I mean, I assumed that was going to be the default yeah, response. Yeah, so I'm sorry, Andy. I'm, I'm sorry, Andy, to be that long to, to think myself into that. But of course, Gunbuster <laughs> is my favourite anime, and it's a six-part OAV um, from the late '80s, made by Gainax, um, and it's it's impossible to release because um, the music and effects track has been lost. And so, if you did release Gunbuster, you would have to do an incredible amount of of archaeology work. To, to actually stick it back together again. I mean, I happen to own all the sound effects from Gunbuster for my sins and also all the musical cues. You know, it is possible to physically build it, the soundtrack again from the ground up, but you'd have to be an idiot to want to do that. So yeah, my, my fantasy, my fantasy release, I'm afraid, will very predictably um, be, be Gunbuster. So uh, I feel I need to touch on something you just mentioned there. Did you say you owned all the sound effects to Gunbuster? Yeah, you can get some weird otaku shit if you if you look around enough and i i um i bought a, a, a gunbuster sound collection many years ago um which was on a whole bunch of cds and, and it had kind of you know the theme song and it had the incidental music and the other incidental music and, and and then it had the door opening noise and the laser sound and and you know an explosion and, and then it had the gunbuster answer phone message which i which i used to have on my answer phone which is the cast of gunbuster saying you know people you hush younger and that's our whole message off we gone um and that used to be on my on my answer phone um you know confusing people whenever they rang me up was um, that just your way of trying to get them to not leave a message 
No, it's just that I I've, I've always found answer phone the the thing that you say when when an, on an answer phone message is so predictable. And I and I you know so I used to I used to say please leave a message in the language of your choice and see what people would do. And my stepmother used to ring up and leave messages in Greek just to annoy me. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I, you know, you, you have this little five-second moment of time that everyone has to share when they ring up a, a phone. And I wanted to do something fun with it. So, yeah, I had my Norio Wakamoto, one of my favorite voice actors, you know, telling you to leave a message after the tone. And yes, it also had all the sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, I guess just, just to throw the ball to you, anything that comes to mind, pie-in-the-sky idea for an Ultimate Edition? Um, I don't think I've got anything that's particularly pie in the sky. I mean, I, I would, I would also like a Gunbuster Ultimate Edition. I, I, I will admit, if if it were possible, um, no, it's not really anything that springs to mind that's in this kind of realms of uh, in, insanity. I mean, I guess, I guess anything Macross related is probably still in the pie in the sky idea. Like a, a complete Macross Ultimate Edition, that's definitely not going to happen. Oh, an Ultimate with, with every single version of Macross ever. Yeah, yeah, just all, all in one, all in one big transforming box. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well. Just as, again, like a very much a pie in the sky idea. I mean, if, if this is going to be like a, sort of another selfish thing of what's like the most random thing that I would really just want a big ass box of. I know I mentioned it about a week or so ago on the podcast, but I would take some kind of ultimate edition of just all of Dominion Tank Police with a bunch of art related stuff in it. <laughs> oh, that would be an interesting thing for the, for, the, for the Dominion fan. Yeah, because you have basically two completely different versions of the same of the same story. Um, and there's some very nice dubbing work on, on Dominion Tank Police. Oh, it's great. Uh, <laughs> not necessarily for the better, but nevertheless, great. <laughs> so you've kind of, in some ways, already touched on this, just based on your last answer, Jonathan. But um, what's in your anime or manga merchandise collection? We now know that you own sound effects. So is there any other, any other perhaps, unique thing that you have in your collection I, that you wouldn't mind wouldn't, sharing with us? I wouldn't call that merchandise, particularly. You know, I mean, I have that kind of stuff for work. Um you may be surprised to hear that if you walked into my house and looked around, you would get no clue whatsoever that it's anime. There is no evidence whatsoever. It's not like the anime limited offices, where for those of you that don't know, you walk in and it's like an anime junkyard in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're being so polite, Jonathan. But the thing is, is, is that I know what happens, Jeremy. You know, you have a little lucky gonk that you get on a trip, and you have a little poster that some director's given you, and then, you know, you... you Another director turns up and they give you a goodie bag and, and then you get a sample from one company and a sample from other. And you don't throw this stuff away. And so over time, it kind of builds and builds and builds until you're absolutely surrounded by figurines and plushies and all kinds of nonsense. And I, I actually made a conscious decision not to get involved in the European Plastic Mountain uh, in that way. Um, and so I've managed to purge most anime merchandise from my life. Downstairs in my kitchen, there is a framed Manga Max cover on the wall, which was the, uh, the last issue of Manga Max that I edited. Um, uh, but apart from that, there are no real clues. But when I saw that question, I did ask myself if I had to have, if you held a gun to my head, you must have anime merchandise in your house. You must have something there that, you know, demonstrates who you are and what you do for a living. I have always been impressed by anime backgrounds. Ever since Joe Peacock showed me a background image from Acura that you only ever saw between two buildings for half a second, but they'd painted an entire cityscape. Um, so I would probably have a nice Ghibli sky or a, or a forest background or something, and I'd put it on the wall like a real painting and wait for someone to ask where it was from. Mm -hmm. 
Is there anything you can recall over the years that perhaps you were given which you're just thinking, what the heck is this? Oh, the, I think the Evangelion egg timer was probably the weirdest thing. Because <laughs> um, you know how they got that big clock with the massive blocky letters that counts down before the power runs out? Yeah. Well, I got given one of those, but it only lasts for like the time it takes an egg to boil. <laughs> um, uh, so that was, that was kind of weird, the, the Evangelion egg timer. Um, but you know, there, there's all kinds of weird stuff. The, the as as the otaku generation got older, as, as the you know the the guys who were Astro Boy fans in the '60s became kind of middle aged and wealthy, and often still remaining single, uh, you would get this um, incredible inflation in what constituted merchandise. I think until you have you know the the, the Evangelion motorbike and the Gundam car, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, so you do get these incredible inflations, and, and Evangelion, of course, is one of the most merchandised um, um, show that there is. I think at one point they had about three thousand different kinds of Eva merchandise that um, Gainax were. Yeah, you know, I mean, what kind of weirdo owns it all? Actually, I know exactly Yasuhiro Kamimura, but you know there is uh, all kinds of weirdness associated in the world, and I think these days. Anime merchandise is a little bit unimaginative. Um, I did. I, I was putting an article together for the um, for the Anime Limited blog, which is coming out next week. It's Andrew Osmond has written an article about the impact of coronavirus on the anime business. And I was trying to find a picture to go with it. And someone started selling Naruto face masks. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's fantastic. And then I realized that they were probably pirates. <laughs> um, so you have to deal with this, this this thing with anime merchandise is that firstly you have this kind of WTF moment of is that really a thing and then you have to ask yourself as a professional in the business is that really a licensed thing and those are two different questions that you have to deal with I mean I've never quite worked out the heli- if the Hello Kitty dildo really was a thing that Sanrio, <laughs> Sanrio were releasing or if that's something that someone else was slapping Hello Kitty logo on and I don't really want to find out to be uh, Andy, just to throw this over to you for a second, what's like a what's a random piece of merchandise you've got in your collection that you, that, you, that, you, that you would like share with someone? Well, not share with someone literally, but as in that you would that you, you would like to make it known that you own. Honestly, I'm I've always kind of stayed away from the, the weird stuff. Like you know, when we reached the kind of anime bubble of you know schoolgirl uniforms on t-shirts and things, I kind of stayed at arm's length from all of that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I don't really have anything weird. Like I have. Two cabinets full of figures in my living room, and like, oh, that's that, not weird. Which exactly? Like <laughs> that is. I mean, it depends who you ask. Like you know, I've invited people <laughs> to my house who have perhaps had taken a different view on that. Um, but yeah, like I have that. You know, I, I'm, I'm literally sat behind shelves and shelves of DVDs. But no, like I've, I've kept it. I've kept it very mainstream and boring. Like I, I have a a pretty solid like anime t-shirt collection some that i would wear out in public others not so much um but that's that's about it really they have anything we had a guest once at uh scotland loves anime who had a space dandy jacket remember that yeah yeah i remember that i quite fancied that actually now i think about it a bit more (laughs) because the chances of there being one in my size are remote indeed but that was pretty cool one of the more random bits of merchandise, if you can call it that, that, that I have is I have an animation cell from Tekaman Blade. I have an animation cell from the Silent Service, but I, I have it because when I lecture about anime, I like to hold up a physical cell and, and show how it works. I don't regard that as like a vanish 
possession in any way. If you can hear an ice cream van outside, that's that's Finland. It's minus three outside, and there's an ice cream van in my street. <laughs> well, what's your ice cream of choice, Jonathan? Licorice. Oh, okay, Andy. Um. Oh, I. D- I don't know. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty plain with my ice cream choices for, for the most part, especially from, from like ice cream van ice creams. In a time of social distancing, actually, Jeremy, this is exactly the wrong time to be taking an ice cream out of the hand of a man who's driven around town handing out ice creams to everybody else. There you go. You have passed the test. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I, I assume this isn't like Glasgow ice cream vans where a lot of them are fronts for drug dealing. But I, I, I can go out and ask him, but I can you know, log out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not expect that to go in this direction but there we go no, this is not the podcast any of us were expecting <laughs> so okay so John Dracup has submitted uh, three questions so uh, Jonathan I will let you choose a number one two or three. Oh, um number two what series or movie would you have loved to have been a part in creating and have had your name included in the opening titles of Oh, now that's a very difficult question because I, I take credits very seriously. Um, and I don't know if you saw on the on the blog this week, we had an obituary for Sankichiro Kusube, who was a, one of the producers of Doraemon. And his mm. name very rarely showed up on, on the shows that he produced because he said people's names, you know, the people who actually physically worked on something should have their names on it, not just some random producer. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of the same when it comes to anime. There, there's a lot of... Uh, particularly among certain American companies, there's a real penchant for pretty much everybody involved to try and shove their names onto the credits. And uh, I once did a, I once directed a dub of a show I will not name. Um, and, I, and I didn't want my, and it's called Schoolgirl Milky Crisis. And, uh, and I, I didn't really want my name on it. I didn't want it associated with my CV. So I said to the producer, look, just, just leave my name off this. Okay? I, don't, I don't want to be associated. And he went, yeah, yeah, fine. When it came out, seven other people had added their names as directors of some kind of description, like director's assistant and assistant director and special executive director. Um, they just want to cram their names in there. So I kind of took that thing kind of personally. And I have to say, if, if my name is going to be on an anime, I want it to be there for a good reason. And so that would be it being based on one of my books. Um, mm. And there has been movement in that direction every now and then you know I, i've sold um options in my books three or four times now to various different film companies and producers and you know 99 of these cases nothing ever comes of it and the rights revert to me so this is this is you know it's just just something that kind of happens um so for example i, I wrote a biography of admiral togo who's the, the 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 man who defeated the russians at the battle of tsushima and he had a really interesting life because he kind of he was one of the last samurai to actually fight with swords, and then he joined the Japanese Navy and he got sent to England um, to study um, seamanship and lived in London for for two years, um, and you know um, uh, went to Glasgow to buy his rangefinders for his guns and you know all kinds of weird things that he did, and you know and he had this kind of big career in the Japanese military as well. And I wrote his biography, and somebody tried to buy the rights to it, and they were going to turn it into an animated series because they really liked the kind of Japan, Britain, international, you know, setting of it all. You know, he was involved in the Hawaiian Revolution as well. American. Um, but I knew that nothing was going to come of this when the producer said to me, we need to wait for our main financial to come out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought something tells me that this production process is going to be quite long and involved. 
and it's not going to get any. So um, something based on one of my own books, and I would very much hope, to be honest, it will be Empress Wu, but I'll take Admiral Togo, I'll take Cox Singer, I'll take the first emperor of China. But uh, yeah, if, if my name's going to be on something, um, I want it to be because of something I've, I've already done, if sense, rather than something I'm going to do. But what about you two? What about, or, or is that just for me? <laughs> I mean, I, I was just going to make that to you, but Andy, oh. I'll throw it over to you. Is there anything you would love to just have your name be a part of the credits of, if it could happen? You see, I'm not sure because, yeah, like I feel like if if I pick something that I really liked and I had a part in creating it, it would have been less good. So <laughs> by default, <laughs> perhaps it's best that I'm, I'm kept well away from these things. So, yeah, I, I don't think I have a good answer for this one. No, I don't either, to be honest. I mean, I suppose if I was going to be involved in any capacity, I imagine it may be some kind of voice rather than actually making the animation. Or well, maybe you could the do actual... the voice to Andrew Partridge Festival Director. I, I don't know if I could do that justice, to be fair. That would be a good series. We, you know, we, we've had series about making anime. I think an anime film for fantastic. Pitch that one. <laughs> so the next question is from Stuart. Any recent works that you'd consider a favourite or must-watch? I have not seen a whole lot of recent anime since Scott and Love's anime because what my anime watching tends to be you know six months early for the festival and then and then not at all and then Ghibli um, on Netflix with your son and then yeah and then wherever I don't I don't even count that that's not new though is it really yeah, um, fair. I have heard very good things about Keep Your Hands again uh, but I haven't seen it myself oh Isaac yeah. yeah but that's that's all really I, that's, I haven't I haven't seen any any, any of this season's new shows yet because I've been uh, I've been finishing my new book, um, which is a history of Chinese food. Um, so not much chance for anime. Andy, what about you? Anything that you would regard as a must-watch that's fairly recent? Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think Keep Your Hands Off Isaac Ken is, is the, the one that I would recommend. It's, it, it is a, a, a fantastic kind of, uh, a fantastic kind of uh, look at, at sort of anime production with a, a, some very unique twists on it. And, and also, it's just also kind of interesting as a more general sort of business and management perspective. Like, even if you're not necessarily deeply interested in the animation side of it, it has it has a really interesting viewpoint on kind of business and making things happen within business as well. So yeah, it's, it's a really good series and it's a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I mean, in terms of recent stuff, just to not add anything to this, there isn't really anything I regard as must watch. Probably because I've already seen things, or I'm I just haven't had time to watch a heck of a lot over the last couple of years. But I suppose if you haven't watched anything in the last couple of years, just go and watch your name. You know, <laughs> <laughs> actually, yes. I mean, if we're going to stick our name to something, juices, let's have it be the thing that's made billion. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Some might and say also, towing the company line. <laughs> well, no, actually, because I, I I remember seeing your name uh, in in Glasgow. You know, when, when I think was that when the premiere was in Glasgow? I believe it was. Yeah, because it yeah, was originally I, where the mystery film, if m memory serves. Right, and I came out and I said to Partridge, you know, he's nailed it. He's actually done it. You know, every single thing that used to be uh, a niggling flaw in a Makoto Shinkai was fixed in your name. You know, he, I think he hit every single target he was ever trying to hit. And that was a joyful thing to see a creative person do that. And it was even better that it made him so much money. Next question is from Douglas. Oh, blimey, here we go. During the current situation, if you had to choose three anime to watch, they can be any three, what would you choose? Oh, I'll, I'll say Totoro, Porco Rosso, and Kiki's Delivery Service, because those are the three I've seen. 
<laughs> Fair play. Uh, Andy, is there one that comes to mind for you? You don't have to pick three if you don't want to. Um, I mean, my, my go-to for, for anything, if, if, if I have to, to watch something on the spot, will, will always be Evangelion. I'll, I'll always watch my way through that quite happily. And hey, 26 episodes, that'll, that'll really? eat up it. Through the end of the world right now, really? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess that's a weird thing, having having questioned people watching <laughs> stuff about <laughs> pandemics. So like, yeah, but a good apocalypse. I'm, I'm, I'm way behind that. Um, so yeah, Evangelion, I'll, I'll always happily watch. I don't know. There, there are lots of things. Like, I, I feel like I have shelves heaving with things that I've been meaning to rewatch and never get around to. So, you know, if, if things get really bad, then I might I might have to start working through that part of the, the things that I've promised myself I'm going to watch again. So for me, if it's... Like I've, I'll just pick one. I would probably pick something that I've not watched in a very long time that will also take me a, a, a heck of a long time to get through. So maybe go back to like I don't mid two thousand period and look, delve into like a, a long running show like a Naruto or a Bleach again. Just watch it from the beginning because I haven't seen them in so long, and then almost sort of try and get either a new appreciation or hate myself one or the other for having gone back and checked it out again. But Jeremy, isn't one of your jobs at the company quality? Aren't you sitting there watching? everything anime make. I mean, you're not wrong. When it comes to quality control, it is part of my job, but also neither of those are our titles, so... (laughs) Right, right. No, 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 fair fair enough. But I'm I'm just wondering, because, you know, quality control is not sitting there with a bag of popcorn and, you you know, wearing your pants, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, watching the shows. You have to, you know, be very careful to, you know, check the subs and check the sound and check the artifacting Mm. and so on. So I imagine it's not necessarily the fun experience that some people might expect no doing qc it's 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 sort of the it's the best of both worlds in some ways when it comes to you know you're making a difference but you need to be on the ball and you also get to watch a heck of a lot of stuff it's it is a delicate balance and there there have been some qc projects which to put it bluntly have been an utter blooming nightmare and it has taken so many hours just to get things right sometimes they are the easiest things in the world and you're actually really worried that you missed something obvious Mm-hmm. And it's it is a it is a that thing of just making sure you're in the right mindset. And there are times where Andy can vouch for this as well. We've had to do what I phrase as QC crunch, which is we have a deadline we have to hit. It doesn't matter how many issues there are, we have to hit it. And mm-hmm. sometimes you've just got to power through, and that's sometimes when something can slip by. Other times you just sometimes think, you know what? I'm going to be far less productive if I try and do this now than if I just get a good night's sleep and just power through in the morning. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it is a problem because you know the fans have their whole lives of spot your mistakes, and you've yep. got three hours. <laughs> yeah, always, always, always tough. Yeah, there's definitely a, a release, a, a relief when a title that you QC comes out and you don't see a flood of messages saying like, "But what about this issue? What about that issue?" You think, "Oh, good, I, I did actually pick up on any, everything." But uh, yeah, for me, the, the, the worst part about kind of QCing stuff is it's just so stop-start watching things because you're constantly having to stop to take notes or you go back and double-check something because you think you maybe saw an issue, and you know you can't even really just sit and watch an episode or a film or whatever is right the way through there's always that case of having to double back on yourself or stop to to, you know scribble things down etc etc so you can't really enjoy it from from that perspective 
some of the worst things I find though, because obviously most of our releases are dual language, so sometimes you go back, you have to watch them in both languages. And sometimes what has happened to me is I've seen a signed subtitle that I genuinely do not remember appearing on the on the, the subtitle track. So I then have to, to make a note of the time code, stop, oh, go back no. to the other language, and just see what's that subtitle there. And it, it completely was. It just it it was there. I just did not recall ever seeing it, and I had a massive panic about it. That's when you start second guessing yourself quite a bit. Mm. But that said, though, being able to do QC, it, it, it is a very rewarding process at the end of it, especially when you just get all the way through and you think, right, done that, we've signed off on it, and then you know it's going to make its way to people's houses and they're going to enjoy watching it. It is a very re- rewarding process in that sense. I'm not saying anything because I'm just thinking of prison school at this moment. Imagine... <laughs> I need to know the I need to know the journey from you getting to prison school, Jonathan. I need to know the journey. No, I'm just imagining what it must have been like to have to sit through that, uh, checking for quality. But, uh, but then I thought, no, I won't say anything. And then I was along. Better explain why I hadn't said anything. And now I've said something. So that's just ruined that. <laughs> oh, I did not expect us to go in that direction. So there you go. Let's move on to Twitter then before we gradually begin to wrap up here. From BipBapB, there's more and more talk nowadays about how poor working conditions are for Japanese animators. Do you think there is a remedy for that? Do you think anime fans can do anything to help at, on our end to help? Oh, that's a very good question. Well, firstly, um, for those that don't know, the issues with um, working conditions for animators have been uh, going on since uh, the 1960s, at least, and possibly since the 1950s. Um, uh, Yasuji Mori, who was one of the lead animators at Toei, actually coined the term anime syndrome. Um, and for him, it referred to these people who are doing late nights, they're living on junk food, they're sleeping at their desks, and you know, they're going out drinking and smoking sometimes with, the, with their fellow animators to try and blow off steam, and they are compromising their immune systems, and they are exhausted. And uh, attached to that is a real problem that you get with the industrialization of any art, which is that art is never finished, it's only abandoned. And when it comes to anime, there is always something you could do better. You know, if you just have 10 more minutes, you can add an extra cell, or you can shade that thing, or you can do that sound effect, or you can you can check that in-betweener. And, and you know, as, as far as things go, you can never sign off on a show and say it is absolutely perfect and you don't need to change a single thing. So that means that as release dates approach, people who care about their work put more and more and more time into it. And the more you care, the more you risk kind of you know ruining your health. And people in the anime business have died um, as a result. Um, there's a corollary to that, which is that under Japanese law, you only qualify for kind of sick pay uh, if you're hospitalized. You need a kind of doctor's note, as it were. And so some of the stories of animators being hospitalized, they're actually people trying to claim days in lieu uh, for working overtime they weren't going to get paid for. So there is, there is that angle as well. Either way, Japanese animators are very poorly paid. Um, and uh, they have, in the words of Friedrich Engels, I don't think you'd get you know Marxist thought quoted on this podcast, but capital aspires to the conditions of Chinese labor, uh, of Chinese wages. And the fact is, is that the anime business is competing uh, with uh, other animation companies that are often using overseas labor that's substantially cheaper, which drives down the price in Japan as well, which means that animators are poorly paid. What can fans do about this? Um, well, 
firstly, very obviously, they can support the anime business by actually buying stuff. Uh, that should at least keep the situation relatively level uh, rather than making it even worse. But I think the answer to this problem can't really come from the consumers. It has to come from the producers. Um, and the, the be- I think some people may be expecting me to talk about the animated dormitory. It was this kind of charity effort a few, a couple of years ago where they crowdsourced a dormitory for animators to live in. They basically subsidized their rent, um, which I thought was a terrible Band-Aid solution because it just meant that they, no one asked questions of the anime business as to why these people couldn't, pay the, or couldn't afford to pay their rent in the first place. However, there are some very heartwarming stories coming out of the business about the difference that Makoto Shinkai has made. Because when he was working on Your Name, he deliberately was determined to try and make the workplace a happier place to be. So he was turning up with actually healthy bento boxes for people, like some love-struck schoolgirl for all his animators. And he was paying for masseurs to come in and massage people's shoulders while they were working. And he was deliberately trying to create a working environment where people could find themselves in a happy place and not just, you know, not want to go into work because they were afraid of what was going to happen. So, uh, and the fact that your name did so well means that Shinkai's approach now has a hashtag attached to it of being somehow successful. So uh, I'm really impressed by that because uh, it's, it's directors and producers who can really fight these conditions. The workers don't really have union representation that's going to bite for them uh, and the, the consumers don't really have any control about how this is done. So it really, the impetus has to come from the top down and uh, one of the best examples of that in recent years has been Shinkai's behaviour on your name and long may it continue. Andy, anything you'd like to add? Um, yeah, I mean, I think on top of everything, everything Jonathan said, I mean, yeah, certainly like, you know, support the anime industry, you know, buy products, subscribe to streaming services, et cetera, et cetera. Like I've, in recent times, we've seen some some rather crazy hot takes online of people saying, oh, animators are badly paid, so that's why I pirate anime. And it's like, that's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> believe it or not, that is compounding the problem, not helping it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, obviously all, all you can really do from from that point of view is yeah like you know support the the things that, that you like with uh, with you know financially in, in that sense and yeah i mean the the, the problem really with, with the pay of animators you know as as well as everything jonathan has said is you know it is such a deep seated problem that kind of sits right at the core of, of the industry from its you know production committees onwards and I think at least some studios are starting to kind of realize that something is, is going to have to, to change or it is going to reach a, a kind of breaking point in some shape or form. And I mean, you know, Kyoto Animation in, in particular are, are kind of a good example of a studio that does things very differently in terms of, you know, making their staff kind of full time and salaried and you know, do, doing what they can to, to you know, make things a, a bit more, a bit more of a, a level playing field, and, and kind of you know make uh, make the animators' jobs kind of livable and sustainable in in terms of their pay. And and I think other studios are, are at least starting to realise and, and trying to to pivot a little more in in the direction of making sure that their animators are looked after because you know they are an important asset to those. To, to those studios and to the industry as a whole um but it's not going to be a quick thing and you know it, it is going to at some point if it's going to get fixed it's going to require some some wholesale change kind of across the business um so you know hopefully that will happen at some point but uh, it's uh, it still feels a long way off at the moment couldn't have put it better 
The next question from Paul. Do you think dubs fit better for anime not set in Japan than those that are? Oddly, yes, I do. Um, it's, it's, it's a very strange question, but a very pertinent. Um, because I'm, as you may know, I'm not a fan of dubs. I understand that there are many people who are and who prefer them, and that's fine. Uh, but I'm a Japan specialist, and I want to hear the Japanese. Um, so the, if, for a dub to exist and for a dub to impress me, it needs a reason to be there. Um, and the best possible reason for a dub to exist is if a show is set in the country that the dub is being produced for. So uh, as a case in point, when ADV did uh, Gunsmith Cats, um, it's the, the only thing that was wrong with Gunsmith Cats, the anime, was that everyone in it was speaking Japanese and it was supposed to take place in Chicago. And, and ADV's uh, style, which was always very sassy and quite sweary, um, was beautifully fitted to a Chicago cop show. And I really did feel, in the case of Gunsmith Cats, that um, the, the, the cherry on the cake, as it were, was the fact that uh, an American company, the AD had, had done the dub. Um, of course, <laughs> that doesn't always apply with ADB, and a lot of the time you think, oh my God, who put that cherry on that cake? Um, but, uh, but nevertheless, they, they were perfectly fitted for that. Um, and it would have been nice to have seen more dubs in the anime world done with a sense of, uh, of the country they were set in. I mean, the number of times there's been an anime set in Britain that's been dubbed in New York, and you think, oh God, could they really not find any British people you know, to play those roles? Um, and uh, I, I've never seen the dub of um, uh, what's that thing about the vampire <laughs> Alucard? Um, you released Hel Helsing. It. Helsing. I've never seen Helsing, so I don't know what the what the dub is like. Um, uh, were, were there actual British people involved in that? I don't remember, but I seem to recall the dub being pretty blooming good for it. Particularly Helsing Ultimate, the original series. I can't remember at all, but Hel right, Helsing okay. Ultimate's dub I recall being very well liked. Andy. Yeah, I, I seem to recall it still being a case of kind of, yeah, like a, a Americans doing British accents rather than kind of native Brits. But yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't a bad dub, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I do. See, actors will get angry with me say this, but uh, I mean, many actors are very good at doing other accents. And, you know, you'll, you'll read their spotlight sheet and they'll list the seven or eight accents that they say they can do. And some of them genuinely can. But a lot of cases, even within... British voice acting, even when you get a man from the north of England playing someone from Essex, sometimes they're concentrating so hard on their accent that they don't have time to really act. Uh, and I've seen that with some of my own work, with some of the Doctor Who stuff. Uh, I, I wrote um, a Doctor Who spin-off once for Big Finish, which was set in Essex, my native country, my native county. Um, and it was full of Essex people talking like Essex people, and I know how they talk because I am one. Um, and uh, there were actors put in who were just from the wrong part of the country to, to do that justice. Um, so, uh, you know, accents are a very difficult thing to do. Dubs are difficult things to get right. But I do think uh, that, you know, if you've got a dub that's set in Britain or a dub that's set in Australia, you know, then or, you know, a cartoon that's set in Australia, let's have Australians do those voices. Let's have, you know, you know considering, you know, the drama that breaks out when, you know, we get gay actors, gay, gay parts played by non-gay actors and, you know, whether or not John Cho should be the hero or something, you know, that kind of representation could also be applied in an interesting way to the dubbing world. Agreed. And I, I also agree with the sentiment that if an anime is not set in Japan, so, sometimes I just prefer watching it dubbed in that sense. Absolutely, it's just something yeah. that I can connect better with it, as weird as it sounds. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the one that always sticks in my mind for that is Bacano, which again, uh, yeah, set, set in the US, you know, set in kind of New York, etc. And the dub fits for that really well, because everybody is kind of, you know, speaking their, their native language and accents in a way that, that kind of accentuates it more than the, the original Japanese does. Yeah, you see, there is a vital kind of 5% of nuance in the way that someone performs. And uh, there, are, there are things that can restrict that. And sometimes it's an actor who's not very good at an accent, trying an accent that's not theirs and losing concentration. Sometimes it's a director who doesn't speak the same language as the actor. I notice a lot of times when you get, say, a Korean director or a Japanese director directing white people or black people, um, the actors don't really emote in the way that you expect them to because the director's not picking up on certain things that a, a, a native speaker would. Um, and so I, I've seen that with uh, when Takeshi Kitano did a film called Brother, which was about gangsters in, in, in America. And the, the, um, the, the black and white characters in it did not emote or behave in the way that you expected African-Americans and, and Wasp Americans to behave. Uh, and it was quite jarring. And, and I really felt it's because you know, you, you've got a director who, who isn't quite there to see that tiny little extra nuance, which is what a good director and a good actor are kind of aiming for because they all want to do their best work, you know? Hmm. And uh, final question for today, I think, from hmm. H94 on Twitter. Uh, it's a pretty simple one, and it's a, perhaps an obvious answer at this stage given how things are, but do we feel that SLA 2020 will still happen despite all the crazy stuff currently happening in the present day, present time? I have an opinion on that, but I'm, I'm sure the two of you have a better idea than I <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, as things currently stand, you know, it's it's very much up in the air. I mean, I, I think the default for kind of any event sort of further down the line at the moment is to carry on in the assumption that everything will be okay, but with a very close eye to the fact that, you know, it, that may not be the case. I mean, I, I think kind of the feeling is obviously... If Scotland's anime doesn't happen this year in, in a, a physical sense, you know, we will certainly be looking at alternatives in terms of, you know, anything else we can do to bring at least some of that festival experience to people. So we would very much like to do something, even if it isn't, you know, our normal physical event in cinemas. Uh, but at the moment, you know, we're just kind of preparing as per usual. And obviously, you know, once we get probably another month or two down the line, we'll have a much clearer picture of, how long things are likely to go on, etc. Et I'm mindful here of the Olympic, um, which uh, in some ways was shut down not by the Olympics, but by the, the run-up to the Olympics, by athletes saying, we can't train in lockdown. So it's unfair to make us show up in July you know, in a competition that we, we haven't been able to train for. And similarly, uh, you and I both know, Andy, we know what the films will be in mm -hmm. Scotland Loves Anime. We, they, they were selected some time ago. Um, whether or not those films can now be completed in time. Is exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's not just a case of can we put bodies in uh, Glasgow or an Edinburgh cinema in October to watch a film. It's that will there be any films for them to watch? And those are two separate questions which uh, you know, are, are, are above my pay grade. But um, you know, hopefully something can be worked out. But I think we'll put safety first. Yeah, Absolutely. Indeed. And, and before we close out proper, everybody, on this coming Friday's podcast, you will recall that we announced that we are going to be talking about the first three episodes of Megalobox, which you can stream now on Channel 4's All 4 service completely for free. And given we have Dr. Jonathan Clements here, I thought it would be good to try and almost have a, have a primer about 
about the Ashi to No Joe franchise, which is the because Megalobox is the 50th anniversary celebration series, if you like, of that franchise. And being completely honest, as both Andy and I have admitted, we're not very familiar with the original franchise in itself. And Jonathan, I'm sure, is at the very least somewhat familiar with it. So, uh, Jonathan, if you don't mind me asking, can you perhaps give us a little primer or perhaps a little a little, little dive, if you will, into uh, some of the history of uh, Ashitano Joe and where it stands in the context of anime? Yeah, sure. It's got a very important place in anime history. Um, sport anime, as you know, are a huge sector of the anime world. And they really began to flourish um, in the in the uh, the lead up to in the aftermath of the Tokyo Olympics of 1964. Um, and so many of the tropes that we associate with sporting anime, many of which many fans have never seen in a sporting anime, but have seen pastiched in science fiction or fantasy, um, uh, originate in these shows. Shows like uh, The Sign Is V and Attack Number One, both of which were about women's volleyball. And I know that sounds weird, but the Japanese women's volleyball team won gold at the Olympics, so it was a huge national celebration that spun off into two manga series that spun off into, into anime and live action. Um, and of course, uh, a, a show uh, that is of particular interest to me as an anime historian, Star of the Giants, was a, uh, about baseball. Um, uh, and it was based on a manga that was written by a man called Iki Kajiwara. And it, uh, um, very famously, the anime caught up with the manga. Uh, and when that happens now in the anime world, we just get filler episodes. Back then, they desperately tried to stretch out the panels that they had for as long as they could, which resulted in the case of Star of the Giants in one episode in which the entire first half of the episode was a pitcher throwing a ball at the batsman. <laughs> but, you know, we zoomed in on the audience, we zoomed in on his arm, we zoomed in on the batsman's eye, and they ding! You know, uh, we, we had a flashback to when he was training, we had a flashback to when he was a kid. You know, and so this, this event, which is supposed to take a minute, stretched out for 12 minutes. And then the batsman connected with the ball, and it was the advertising break. And then they came back for the, for the ball flying into the stand, home run, and everything like that. So it was just a couple of panels from the manga that was stretched to a ludicrous length. And this became one of the, 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 the roots of the hyper reality that we see in so much anime today. These freeze frames and these zooms, these storytelling techniques, they were, you know, uh, pioneered in many ways on Star of the Giants. Now, Iki Kajiwara was a pseudonym. Um, his actual name was Asaki Takamori, and under another pseudonym of Asao Takamori, he wrote Tomorrow Joe. Um, because this manga creator, this manga writer, he, he wasn't an artist, he was a writer, he was incredibly prolific, and he was working for rival titles. And one of the reasons is that we get so many recurring tropes in sports anime isn't just that you know he was a pioneer, but he was a pioneer in several different strips at once. They all started to look like each other. And so what we get with um with tomorrow's joe with ashton or joe uh which was i think published in was it 1968 the manga was published i think um but we get uh takamori as he was then called drawing on his past as a juvenile delinquent drawing on the idea of someone from the wrong side of the tracks joe um who could be heading towards a life of crime and in fact does end up in prison for it um somehow being redeemed through sport, through channeling this violent instinct he has, through through channeling uh, this, you know, he, he, he doesn't have many abilities in One of the abilities he has is he's really good at punching people. 
And so in much the same way that Chris Eubank said, you know, for some people uh, with a very limited opportunities in, you know, boxing is the only way afforded to them of any escape, despite the dangers that it offers. And tomorrow's show is very, very big on that. Um, so uh, we have this, you know, this juvenile delinquent character who is reformed ultimately by his abilities in boxing. But he walks this incredibly dangerous line because you know, every time you're getting in a ring, you're risking your life, you're risking your health, you're risking your ability to get into the ring again. Um, what we also have in Joe is an early appearance of a, of a character type that will sound very familiar to you now because his coach is an old, failed boxer. And so we have this kind of old mentor figure called Danpe, who is desperately trying to, to kind of mold Joe and to have Joe not make the same mistakes that he did. Uh, we also have an opponent, a rival called Ricky Ishii, um, who Joe is desperate to defeat, but comes to respect uh, in a way. Um, and ultimately, and uh, it's been a very long time, so I'm sure you won't mind a few spoilers, he ends up inadvertently killing him in the boxing ring. And in fact, what we get with Joe is that he, he runs up against these opponents, and whether they're good or bad, and whether they're nice to him or whether they're bullies, you know, he's giving people brain damage. He's ruining their careers. You know, he's, he's maybe even causing some people's deaths. And so you go through this, you know, cycle that you get with so many sports anime is that you make it to the top and you win the championship, but then that just puts you at the bottom of the next league and you have to go through it all again. And the stakes keep on getting bigger. In the case of Joe, they get more international fighting uh, boxers from other countries. And there is this fantastic thing that starts to come into the series as it goes on, which is that uh, the artist, by the way, is Tetsuya Chiba. He's he's very very well known Japanese artist. He was quite heavily featured in the in the exhibition at the British Museum, um, and I've got something to say about him later on. But as the manga goes on and as the anime goes on, it starts to take on an almost magic realist quality, and you don't quite understand what's going on. And and then you realise that Joe is getting punch drunk. But the way he sees the world is not necessarily true anymore, and so you start to doubt every single scene that happens because you're not quite sure whether he's really concentrating or if he's having one of his episodes again. And that starts to really kind of ramp in until the very final fight when uh, Joe is uh, is up against uh, Jose Mendoza, I think, the world champion at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, will he win against Mendoza? Will Mendoza win against him? Will it all come down to points? And if it does, who's left standing at the end? And if they are still standing at the end, how long are they standing for? You know, so very much like the Rocky film, which I think inadvertently stumbled onto many of these tropes themselves. Um, you have this idea that, you know, winning won't necessarily be everything because it's, you know, can you walk away from the ring? And if you can walk away from the ring, you know, will you still have a life afterwards? So those are all, you know, big issues in Ashton or Jaw. Um, and the ending in particular, I won't give the ending away because I'm making a box who's going to follow it to the letter. But the ending is very ambiguous in terms of whether you, of who you think has won and who you think has lost and what they've won and what they've lost. And so that was a big hit with the late 60s and early 70s Japanese because while sports anime in 64 was all noble and exciting and we are the Olympics and we're going to you know, strive to do our best, by the 70s, you've got a world that's embroiled in Vietnam You've got Japan entering a recession and you've got a whole generation of really miserable people 
who are very much keener on a kind of depressing angle on things and a downbeat kind of anti-hero. And you get all of that in Ashton or Jaw. And in fact, you may not know this, but Ashton or Jaw was actually screened in Britain at an absolutely disastrous event um, in Brixton. Um, because uh, the Tetsuya Chiba came over. Um, his son was in a band who was playing at the ICA, so he came over as well. And they said, Chiba, let's, let, let's pile on and do an event about him. Um, and there was an event at the ICA, um, and there was an event in Brixton. And uh, I had to interview Tetsuya Chiba on stage, and uh, Motoko Tamamura uh, was my interpreter. And we got him talking about stuff, and we had the usual weird questions from the audience. Um, and uh, the organizers then said, oh, we, you know, we're going to show the film. And I said, really? Where did you get that subbed? And they went, oh, you know, you don't need subs for this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it turned out that the people who've been arranging this spent months, literally months, having meetings and lunches, telling each other how great it was going to be. And none of them had just had bothered to actually put a subtitle track together for this film, for this like 70-minute film. And uh, they, they didn't have any money left to pay for it. Um, and so we, had, we were in this awfully embarrassing where you know we have this interview with a world-class manga artist i mean this you know tetsuya chiba is is one of the top manga artists he's an incredible celebrity to have presence he was really charming he managed to win over a crowd that contained many young kids who had seen none, none of his work but were desperate for his autograph at the end of it he was a very charming man um and and yet at the end of it all we had to say and now here's the film of tomorrow's joe and then just run for it <laughs> Um, so, uh, I mean, luckily Chiba didn't stay to sit through the film because, you know, and, and neither did I. I, I was well out of there. I, I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, I only really stayed around because Motoko was my interpreter and I didn't want to let her down. Um, but you know, what an awful thing to do to an audience to make them sit through raw Japanese with no real warning. Like, oh, it'll be fine. You'll guess what's happening. Um, so yeah, that was a terrible event. Um, and it must, it must've been about 20 years ago now. Um, so that was when Tomorrow's Joe was screened for the first and last time in Britain. <laughs> um, and I doubt very many people stayed for the end of that. So people who see Megalobox are going to be, you know, pretty much walking into it mainly completely without knowing that it is a commemoration. And when you say it's a commemoration, I did not appreciate that until you told me you wanted to hear about the relationship between it and Tomorrow's Joe. I did not get what that actually meant until I went and checked the credits. And you are absolutely right. It is a remake of Tomorrow's Joe. It's certainly changed a lot. And I'm sure next time you talk about this, you can talk about all the things I've said that aren't in Megal. But um, much like, you know, Siraj the Cricketer, which was, you know, star of the giants, but made as a cricket and a cricket cartoon in India, they've taken the basic idea of uh, Tomorrow's Joe and stuck this kind of science fiction mapping on top of it um which is something very common in what i like to call the post anime world um normally i mean i can't speak to how this contract looks but in my experience if you take a basic anime plot and and reuse it in some kind of new way the original copyright holders are probably on a five percent cut so this is fantastic news if you're tetsuya chiba and uh, the estate of, um, of uh, Asao Takamori, because you're looking at 5% for nothing. You know, this, this is something that you, you wrote 40 years ago, 
Um, and oh, sorry, 50 years ago. Sorry, this is the 50th anniversary. So, you know, we're looking at uh, something that is very much part of the fabric of, of Japanese media, something very, very well known by parental generation, probably not so well known with the millennials kids, which is why they've gone for this kind of respray version of it. But a fascinating opportunity, I think, to retell a story that is very much of its time. And I'm very intrigued to hear how it is of our time. So there you go, everybody. Make sure you listen back on Friday as it'll be myself, Andy and Keith talking about the first three episodes of Megalobox. And Jonathan, thank you very much for that prime. And I, I have learned a lot of stuff in there. And I'm actually more excited to, to watch Megalobox again, Andy. I don't know about you. It's been <laughs> ages since I've seen it. I'm actually really interested in watching it, knowing a lot of that info now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like it's it's interesting. Yeah, having, having watched that back when it uh, when it simulcast is like yeah, there, there's clearly I, I can kind of see you know where where they have sort of mapped the original onto to that series, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, it'll be it'd be interesting to to go back and talk about it come Friday. Well, Jonathan, we, we've taken up a heck of a lot of your time, so thank you very much. And I, I guess I'll open up the floor to, to you. Is there anything that you you would like to plug, make known to people of how they can find your work? So if you've got anything new in the pipeline, you'd like to share. Uh, not, not at the moment, actually. I mean, the, the, the big news for me is my death note French, but unless... Oh, sorry, Jonathan, say that again, you cut out. Well, the, the big news for me is of probably no interest to your listeners, but which is that my death note series is out in French. Uh, some of you may know, uh, three years ago now, I wrote a 12 part audio series, a 12 hour audio series based on death note. And that was released in German, uh, by Audible in Germany. And uh, out of nowhere, last week, the French version suddenly turned up, and it's starring the cast of the original anime. Uh, so the French oh, really? Actors, wow. Yeah, yeah the, 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 the French Death Note voice actors are now in this version, which is, it, so it's, it covers a lot of the story of the Death Note anime, but it does veer off course in several interesting ways. There's a couple of new characters, including the President of the United States, who's quite topical. Because, um, <laughs> you know, in, in Death in Death Note, the President of the United States is this kind of um, stoic, kind of George Bush elder, elder, kind of like George Bush the elder. He's kind of based on the United States at the time the Death Note was, was being written. Um, and so uh, I thought, well, if we're going to update Death Note for the digital age, we need to base the President of the United States on the current President of the United States. So in, in this version of Death Note, he's a fucking buffoon. Who you know starts, starts wars by accident and puts millions of people in danger? I mean, I don't know where I got that idea from, but you know, it just kind of came to me. Um, so uh, the way that the American government, CIA, and the, and the SPK operate in Death Note is steered by having a commander in chief who's only interested in golf. Um, so that's a very different kind of way that it works out. But anyway, if any of your readers, do, if any of your listeners do speak French, it's available on Audible, and there was supposed to be an English version as well. And I asked her from the producers back in September, um, and I emailed them a couple of days ago, and I said, look, I haven't heard from you. The French have just suddenly dropped 12 hours of death note on everybody out of nowhere. Um, is there an English version that I should know about coming up soon that I can mention? And I'm on the Anime Limited podcast, and I haven't had a reply because obviously they're all in lockdown. So possibly there will suddenly be an English audible death note turning up, you know, any day. Or, or maybe maybe they haven't recorded it yet, and to wait until after the you know the disaster has passed i don't know so that's the only that's thing fast. 
Uh, sorry, I was going to say, that, that, that that's fascinating that the French version has the same voice cast as the actual anime version. That's fascinating. We had a lot of arguments about the cast. Um, when I wrote the original, um, the Germans said to me, okay, this, this is going to be in German, it's going to be in English, it's going to be in French. So we need to talk about the actors, we need to talk about who's going to be in it, and we need to deal with the possibility that we have Hollywood A-list, and we need to deal with the possibility that we have complete unknowns, and we need to have the possibility that we have all Asian casting, you know, because there's a lot of whitewashing, you know, drama going on, uh, mm. particularly after the release of the America of the Netflix Death Note film. Um, so I have to put together like a, a wish list of who I thought should be in it. Um, partly because wouldn't it be great if we could get you know Gillian Anderson playing a death god, and uh, <laughs> but also also wouldn't it be great if you know, we couldn't get Gillian Anderson, but the but the director then had an idea in his head of who he who he could get to play it, you know, uh, because in order to give them some kind of shorthand, it's it's good to have these kind of fantasy casting. And it's like, oh, you know, Sean Bean's good for that role, um, for example. I mean, I mean for example, I, I wanted Sean Bean playing like Dad, because in in my version, it's a police procedural. Uh, it's much more policey. Than the original so mm. the so light's dad so it's your he's an old cop but he's still a cop you know he, he can handle himself in a fight uh you know when when the chips are down and i, I needed a kind of aging hero sean bean or, or, or russell crowe you know that kind of kind of figure mm. so I, I did that kind of fancy casting and then i said look okay if you can't afford these people here's a bunch of people i think could do it you know, these are actors that I know from the big Finnish days and from the anime world and so on, you know. Uh, and in fact, here's a bunch of dubbers that Anime Limited used that you could hire if you wanted to. You know, really trying to sort of give them as many options as I possibly could. Mm. Um, and uh, But what we didn't discuss was the original voice act from the anime because I've never heard the German or American dub of Death Note and I can't say I paid a whole lot of attention to the English dub. Um, so I really left it to them. I said, if you if you want to try and rustle up the English voice actors who are in Death Note, that's fine. But they're but they'll be older now, and they won't necessarily be able to play all the parts. I mean, in Death Note, you don't just have them as teenagers. You have this you know massive time jump halfway through the series, which is about I don't know six or seven years, I think. So some of the characters like uh, like sister, you basically need a new actress to play her because the voice will change so much. Um, so there's all, all all of that to bear in mind. Um, so in the French, in the German version, they didn't use the original actors. They hired a bunch of, of, of other actors. But clearly, the, the French were somehow able to, to track down the, the, the Death Note cast in French. Um, and, and it's pretty much all the major roles are being played who played them in the French dub. That's, that's really cool. I don't know what you think, Andy, but I think that's actually genuinely fascinating and awesome. Yeah, yeah, I imagine that will have gone down pretty well with uh, with fans of the series as well. Yeah, the reviews have been pretty good. I mean, there's one guy on, on Amazon once saying that I I blasphemed against the show and that I'd ruined it for him, but that's mainly because of the ending. Um, <laughs> but uh, but most of them most of them have been very appreciative of the fact that you know you don't want to just go through the series point by point the way it was 20 years ago. You know, times have changed. We uh, my, my death note is very much about the impact that social media has on detection and on the kind of crimes you can commit um, and on transparency. Um, 
but also uh, you know we have a, we have a new American president, um, but we also have you know we have Me Too culture and we have you know the Bechdel test and all of these, uh, which which in fact um, Lisa mistakes for a sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> She's wittering about light all the time, and one of the girls says to her, you know, have you ever woken up and taken a Bechdel test? And, and, and she says, I haven't got any STDs. What do you mean? <laughs> um, it's a very Misa moment. Um, so these these are all things to to consider and and kind of bring into a to a more modern version of the show. Um, so I've kind of dragged all those things in, and that has meant that it diverts in on some occasions very far from the original. Um, the ending is very different and has been a little bit controversial. Um, there's also uh, some elements I can't really discuss without spoilers to do with you know what happens to L and what happens to Watari and so on. Um, uh, and also some of I've also changed the sex of some of the characters because the Death Note is very male heavy, and that really becomes obvious when its voice is without pictures. And so there are several major characters I've actually made them women instead, so that you actually get a, a better variation in the sound picture. So I've done all those things, and that's you know, that's been generally very well received, apart from one guy. <laughs> Which you know what, Jonathan? I think you've done pretty well there, by the sound of yeah, it. <laughs> that's you know, it's, it's, in the anime world, that's a victory. <laughs> uh, any other books that people can uh, sorry can be on the lookout for? Um, well, my brief history of China is out. My brief history of Japan. They're doing very nice. Um, uh, people, uh, oddly enough, um, Kindle sales have gone up in the last. Um, so there's a lot of people isolating and buying books as they do, which has been very, very nice for the impoverished author. Um, but no, my 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 new book, which is of Chinese food, which is called Banquets and Barbarians at the moment. Um, that I've just handed that in, but it's going to be it's not going to be published possibly till next year because we're now looking at the situation where the printers are in China. Oh, ah, you know, I see. <laughs> uh, that's going to be quite hard to sort out. But I, I have delivered it, and I, I'm, I'm working on my next book now. So, um, oh yeah, the book I'm writing right now. I'm not writing a book at all. I'm translating a book with uh, Motoko Tamamuro. It's the Japanese Guide to Healthy Drinking. Amazing. <laughs> and it's it's uh, a nutter, an absolute nutter called Kari Haishi. I think her name is, and uh, or Kari Haishi, and she. Um, she goes around all the hospitals in Japan interviewing doctors about drinking. Uh, and it's absolutely fascinating. It's really scientific about what alcohol does to your body and how it affects you and what a moderate amount is and what's safe and what's healthy and what's not. And it's really interesting. I mean, only today uh, I was re- I about uh, alcohol burn, about why you get a sore throat after you've been drinking. And they were talking to a man from The Voice uh, Academy, I think it was, um, saying there is no direct correlation between alcohol and burning your throat. But if you're drinking alcohol, you're in a pub and you're shouting more, smoking more, and you're probably doing karaoke, and that is going to affect you. Um, so you know, all kinds of you know, interesting stuff like that. But that, again, won't be out till October, I expect. So you'll have to, you know, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about Definitely. So uh, on that note, once again, thank you very much, Jonathan, for all your time. And, and Andy, in case I've forgotten something crucial, is there anything else that we need to plug when it comes to our company and such? Uh, no, I think we've covered everything. So yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Is that uh, entertaining and informative as always? Well, happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. We will talk to you on Friday. Bye, everyone. Bye.